0: The Scottish Business Network podcast.
1: Hello, my name is Fraser Allen, and this is episode 80. If you're a regular listener, you may have noticed a bit of a gap since the last one, partly due to my involvement in other podcast series, and partly due to COVID striking the Allen household. All is well now, though, and it had to happen eventually, I suppose. Achoo! But we are back with a very entertaining guest indeed, Damien Riley Smith. Grew up in Norfolk, but has strong family connections with Jura, both the island and the whisky. A born entrepreneur, he avoided studies during his time at Cambridge University because he was so busy running three businesses he had started up. A magazine, a nightclub and a boxer short business. Yep, you guessed it. It was the 80s. After a brief spell in venture capital, he then moved into magazine publishing, which has been the focus of his career ever since, drawing him back to both Scotland and whiskey. He's the founder of Scotland Magazine and Whiskey Magazine, and has gone on to build a publishing empire based around drinks, hospitality, events, and awards, and culminating in his renovation of Roth's Glen Castle on Speyside, turning it into a luxury retreat for whiskey lovers. I interviewed Damien on the 25th of February, 2022. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Scottish Business Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice. Damien Riley-Smith, it's great to have you on the podcast. We've met a few times in the past, but it's been quite a, quite a while now. So where do we find you today? I'm currently
0: at Rothys Glen, a 15-bedroom castle up in Spayside that I purchased just before lockdown. In fact, so close to lockdown that I could move in here on March the 23rd, 2020,
1: the day of lockdown, and start work on it. Wow. Well, we're going to come back to that because uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a great story there. But let's let's start to the, the very beginning of your life. So where did you grow up, uh, Damien? What was family life like? And as a boy, what did you dream of doing for a career? Did, was it, did, were you thinking then about magazine publishing?
0: My life started in Kent. I was born in Canterbury, where my father worked for a brewery because our family business was brewing. And he was down there learning to train to be a brewer for another competitive brewer, as was a common process then. Uh, Then he moved to London and then eventually up to Norfolk when I was eight. And so I lived in Norfolk most of my life. And that's where my primary home is at the moment and where I live and my business based in Norwich. And I wrestled at you because you did forewarn me. You want, might want to know what I dreamed about being. And I couldn't actually think of anything. But then I did remember um, there was only one thing. I was obsessed with becoming a farmer and having pigs and sheep and cattle and dogs. Uh, and I very successfully avoided all of those.
1: And <laughs> Isn't there a, a family connection <laughs> with, with Scotland as well?
0: Yes there's a, there's a a number of well there's two primary connections. Uh one is that my grandmother was a Henderson and she uh was from Glasgow and then the her brother-in-law effectively my great uncle owned a large section of swathe of Jura which was bought by the family in the 1930s as a bit of fear uh planning against what was going on in Europe at the time. And as a result, my great-uncle then rebuilt the Isle of Jura distillery, owned the Jura Hotel. And so I've spent every single winter and summer uh, holiday, at least one week on the Isle of Jura, battling with the storms or the rain. So yes, there's a profound history of Scottish life for me.
1: And so uh, as we'll discover later, you've continued the the family tradition for for whiskey in, in various forms. Um, you studied at Cambridge, Damien, so what did you gain from that experience and was keen to know? I mean, where were you most likely to be found? Was it in the, in the library, on the sports field or in the bar? Never once,
0: I don't think, on any three of those, I'm afraid. Literally never once. I, yes, I did get quite involved in the drinking culture, just purely to support the industry. But primary thing was I ran businesses. I was a businessman at university i had oh really i had uh i ran three different companies one was a publishing company and i set up a magazine called roundabout oxford and cambridge which was the only free guide for students at cambridge and oxford uh i had a boxer short business in the time when the boxer shorts were coming into fashion in the (laughs) the 1980s so it was called boxer short bonanza and then I ran a nightclub uh, called the Quattro Club, which I then franchised to my brother in St. Andrews. So we had, we were national nightclub chain in <laughs> Cambridge and St. Andrews. So all I did, I mean, I don't know why, it was just what I loved doing. I, I ran businesses mm. all the time at university. I had actually ended up with a team. I had a PA. I had a secretary um, somehow squashed into my little two-bedroom house with three other Roommates.
1: That's fascinating. I never knew that about you. So obviously, a very strong desire to be entrepreneurial, uh, even yeah, at that early I, age. I call it a creative disease.
0: I can't get out of the system. So yeah, <laughs> it started very, very. I was just obsessed. It started well before then when I sold
1: eggs and daffodils at the end of the lane from nine. So well, yeah. um, I mean, you, you then uh, after that, you. Uh, I, I imagine that. You, The temptation was probably you carried on some of these business activities in the background, but you spent a a short spell in working venture capital. So what did you learn from that period? That was
0: absolutely fascinating. I was very lucky to be one of the first ever venture capitalists in the UK because there was Schroeder Ventures was one of the first companies. It had eight partners, all of whom were business, ex-businessmen and women, not trained accountants or financiers, and they wanted a sort of grunt. Uh, and so age 21, 22, I went there and was there sort of getting facts and information and absolutely fascinating everything from, you know, high industrial technology companies. I ended up on the board of four companies, age 22, Shire Pharmaceuticals being one of them, which was because they had to nominate a board member from the company. And Shire was tiny then and now is a multi billion pound company and then saw lots of failures as well. So lots of businesses we invested in that actually went bust and uh, so much so that after three years there, I said, because I was I was too involved at a very high level in companies. And I, I actually genuinely said, this is ridiculous. I'm 24, 23. I don't know how to advise a 50 year old you know, businessman how to run his business. This is mad. Although they, they gave me the opportunity. So I said, I'm going to go and work for an investee company. So I did work for one of the investee companies, which after two years went bust. So I've seen, you know, all sides of the business Mm. community from that, which was fascinating.
1: So were there any particular lessons that you, you drew from the successes and the failures that you observed and were involved in to a certain extent that you were then able to apply to your own business? I, I mean, I think the only – the the one thing that probably we all know about business is
0: people. So the, the, the people who were really good and really impressive ran brilliant businesses. The ones that were not that brilliant or you felt were slightly trying to pull the wool, you just felt they wouldn't succeed. You didn't know, but actually you look, look back a few years later at the investments one has, and it was really – there were so many good ideas – but it was the one that had the good ideas with the good people that were a great success. And there were plenty of good ideas that failed because they were run by people that didn't really know what they were doing or they felt they could take over the world in a week when it takes a lifetime. So it was a a fascinating exercise in, you know, brilliant ideas don't just happen without the people. And Mm -hmm. I think we probably all had great inventions. You know, yeah, I invented the Nando's chain in 1982, but I just never got around <laughs> to doing it. You know, so we've all had
1: great ideas. Mm. Um, but you need people to make them happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Um now we're both alumni of uh, Michael Hessin's Haymarket magazine publishing empire. And um you could you tell us about your experiences? I mean, what, what drew you to, to go there in the first place? And you worked on some legendary business titles, such as Management Today and Campaign, before becoming a director, director of what's called Evro, which is a, like a joint venture. So, yeah, talk us through that. Uh, to be absolutely honest,
0: I let my, it's the only time my parents have got involved in my life, I suppose, probably career, certainly, is my mother saw an ad by Haymarket in something like the Telegraph or Times. Looking for trainee publishers and I, I told them I was going to leave venture cap not venture capital, the, the venture capital company I was in. Uh, and I thought, okay, well I'll look at what you're sending. Okay. And anyway, it was it was of appeal because I had run magazines at university. I, I knew what they were about a bit. Uh, I knew they could make money. And I thought it'd be fascinating because it was trainee publisher, so it wasn't going in as a grunt because I'd done I'd been slightly spoilt by that stage. So I thought why not and I I've had a lot of interviews seven interviews because I was really not sure I wanted to join uh, but it's the only interviews I've ever had and uh, eventually I was lucky enough to be one of four uh, people who became trainee publishers under the the Heseltine group working with Simon Tyndall and Lindsay Masters who were running the business fascinating
1: and and so tell us a bit about evro so what what was that all about and what what were you doing Well,
0: after after running, not running, but publishing, looking after, leading in various capacities, Management Today and then Campaign, which are quite big titles, uh, Evro, which was an acronym for Eric Verdon Rowe, uh, a, a, a very successful publisher within the Haymarket Group, he had somehow created a joint venture between Haymarket and himself and at that point, he was looking for someone to run the company. And I was fortunate that my sort of uh, slightly entrepreneurial f- approach appealed to him. And I got the opportunity to effectively run a joint venture rather than just a division of the company, which was great fun.
1: And the, the company was, was later sold, wasn't it? And that's when you went off and set up your, your own business. Yes, yeah, that- it
0: was sold it was, I, I cannot remember the date, I'm afraid, but let's say 96, something like that. The joint venture was sold to a PLC very successfully. The PLC was primarily a business publisher only, only did business magazines. And I had three of the consumer magazines plus some business magazines. And it was a, a an ill-fitting uh, situation to be the only sort of beautiful chap in a sea of um quite unattractive fish um and uh, it just wasn't gonna you know i was suddenly in this huge corporate culture driven by the stock market where growth was everything uh, and it didn't suit my approach to you know thinking long term and being a bit more creative and so i did the uh, foolish thing that many of us have done and i just quietly left and Set myself up the next day on my own with no actual particularly clear vision of what it was going to be.
1: So, um, sorry did you did you take those magazines with you? No, you know? I took nothing
0: with me. Uh, probably my laptop. Um, I took nothing right. with me. I, I definitely had an ambition to do something in drinks, and I had exposed in my mind that there was an opportunity in whiskey, particularly, to get things going because. At that time, whilst wine, so we're talking mid-90s, was still very fashionable, there were lots of magazines, lots of television programmes, etc. on the subject, there was nothing on whiskey, and because of my experience of Scotland and other parts of the world in drinks, I knew the stories in whiskey were, in my opinion, as good, if not better, than wine, and so I wanted to dive into it when I could.
1: So... Tell us about how the the way that you built the the business then, and and you know how it's the, the ups and downs that follow. Because I mean, the magazine publishing uh, world is very difficult, isn't it? And and you've really seems to be prospered through a lot of quite clever diversification into to, into events and awards and all, all that kind of stuff. So, what have been some of the high points? Some of the and the, some of the real challenges that you've experienced over the years. Uh, I think. The thing that has
0: driven my business is the French word terroir. So I'm really obsessed with location, and then I take that to a a second stage, which I'm obsessed with. I break everything in the world down into people, product, and place. So if we start with location, where I've managed to be lucky and done okay in things is where location has driven a lot of the content or the concepts. And where I have not been successful is where I've ignored that. So the very simple example, whiskey is about, and was then, it's less so now, it was only about a few places, Scotland, America, Japan, mainly. Canada and Ireland were tiny markets of producing So it's about, okay, when you say whiskey, everyone sort of has a vision of a location. And what does that mean? It means you've got places to visit. It means you've got people to meet within a very defined space. It's very good for travel. It's very good for content. It's very good for communication. And there are very strong brands that have a locational basis to them. Where I then failed is I thought, well, it works on whiskey, so it must work on beer. Well, why does it not work on beer? Because beer is made everywhere on earth, literally. And there is no locational hook that the, particularly the consumer can grab hold of. So again, if you're into whiskey and you live in Mongolia, you will love Scotch whiskey and American whiskey. But if you live in Mongolia, you really couldn't give a brass monkeys about anyone else's beer. You'll drink Mongolian beer. And therefore, from a publishing perspective, I always wanted to do magazines and brands that were global, they had international reach, they could be licensed into other languages, and that they could be cross-border. That is not the case. And I I've sort of—I didn't break my own rule. I learned my own rule by trying beer. And you suddenly go, well, it's too international. There's no location, particularly in it. It's everywhere. And so there's nothing unique. Me publishing on a magazine on on beer is not unique to someone doing it in Australia or in America, where there are very good magazines. So you end up not succeeding. So location, absolutely critical. And then when you have my second obsession, which is people, product and place, I break all the world into that. It becomes terribly easy. You go, well, if you're going to have a magazine, those are the three themes of it. If you then look at uh, events, you need people. You need product, and then you need a place. I mean, it's all quite jarlish stuff. But then particularly when you come to awards, I've been very clear on creating awards that identify those brands. So what does that mean, or those categories? People, we have something called icons of whiskey. Product, we have something called the World Whiskies Awards. And place, actually, again, is icons of whiskey. So you have a a hook. uh, And the beauty, if you follow the terroir model, which I'm obsessed with, is there is a logic to the world's best uh, Scotch whiskey distillery or the world's best American distillery or Japanese whiskey distillery. And then that is understandable to the consumer because that's actually how they think and drink. And it's understandable to... Uh, the the advertiser the communicator because they get that interactive link is is very very clear so that's sort of driven everything and then once you get that right which i as i've said i have got wrong in a number of occasions including the gardeners atlas my lovely brilliant atlas idea which um, sounds great (laughs) it is brilliant we still get calls 15 years after i closed it um the just the final point is that is if you get it right and it's based on terroir, you can then extend that idea to other categories of drink or you could do. So American Whiskey Magazine, we started three years ago, doing very well. Uh, We're looking at starting Rum Magazine next year. Uh, It's all about location there. Uh, Gin Magazine, we started two years ago, is beginning to do really well. It's not quite as obvious with terroir, but it is made in very specific places. And the terroir there is based on the ingredients, the botanicals. So it does have a locational element. And then the final point that sort of knits it all, all together is that you can actually uh, sort of export that idea worldwide and license it. So if you've got a great magazine on whiskey here, hopefully the Chinese or the Americans or the French. Want to have it and put it in their languages.
1: Wow. Now, I first uh, knew you because you also published Scotland Magazine. Uh, what, what's what's the story I mean, you, you sold that, I think, didn't you, two or three years today. ago? Why, yeah. why, why was that? Did it okay. no longer fit with the with that sort of logic? It was one of those uh, mad ideas which is
0: not that mad because it's so simple, but it was mad. I remember literally I sat down in a hotel in Edinburgh having oh, in about the fifth year of Whiskey magazine. I thought, God, this is all about Scotland. I think I might do a magazine on Scotland. So about three months later, I launched Scotland magazine. Um, and it really was as simple as that. And I also had a very good uh, business partner in the States who was very good at generating subscriptions. So we went from no paid readers to in excess of 15,000 in about three years. So that <clears throat> worked. So that was a great success while it lasted. It fitted a lot of my model things I just said. It was about location. It was terroir. The challenge is product. There is actually only one product that is hugely successful for Scotland in the consumer space, which is whisky. And I do a magazine over there called Whisky. So it it always struggled on the advertising side, which is the area I like to build a business on, the direct relationship between uh, consumer and producer. Of anything, but you know, there was never the right money in cheese or farming or uh, you know salmon uh, and I had the opportunity in 2019 or I planned to because uh, what I decided, having reviewed my business in 2018, I wanted to focus only on drinks because I would by that stage was in gin, whiskey, American whiskey, rum, and we now have twenty eight drinks awards, so we're in all the categories of drink. Um, I wanted to focus on that because one of the great super benefits of drink, which was exposed and uh, enjoyed during the last two strange years, is you can send it to people in small quantities. So I have a series of events around the world called Whiskey Live, which is very simply a festival, a a show about drink. Well, if I was running a clothes show live or shoe live, or car live, it's pretty difficult to send to your customers little samples of that product. The joy of whiskey live and gin live, because we, we do both of them now, is I can send people miniatures. We can do videos, a bit like this conversation we're having, a podcast, where the distiller talks one-on-one, and there's no wastage to the consumer. So one of the great sort of successes of, of the, the strange two years we've had is I've still been able to promote drink direct to the right audience in an even more coordinated fashion, uh, arguably, than, than one did before. And that's worked, fortunately. And so uh, my decision was not to, to be in mass market, warm, friendly marketplaces like travel. So I would have called Scotland Magazine a travel magazine, whereas what we do is drinks product magazines where the only advertising we really cover is for carriers from the app, from the product or from the producer or from their locations, which they own their, their visitor centres. So that was, it was a strategic decision that turned out to be luckily correct because I think a travel magazine for the last two years would have been one of the least enjoyable things I
1: could have done. Yeah. was a good, good thing to get out of and sound of it. So I'm um, talking about the last two years. I mean, have there been any other sort of, uh, pros and cons of what we've been through with the, the pandemic crisis, and, and and also, have you got any any plans as we're coming out of it now for sort of further product development or expansion? I uh,
0: broadly because, and I think it's because we've been we are in the drinks industry. We've had a, a fairly positive two years. I'm sure individuals have, have struggled, but if we talk about the business, it has thrived because. Uh, On the income side, we've managed to protect a lot of our income through some of the ways I've just explained. And through the cost side, no one's traveling. There's a huge cost uplift on that. Obviously, the government have been very supportive. That's helped. Um, And one's been very tight on everything. We all have because we didn't know what was around the next corner. So I come out of it in a business strength position with a lot of optimism about our two categories, media and uh, drinks. And yes, in, just yesterday we had a two-hour mini board meeting reviewing you know, where we could go from here. And I was surprised. The conclusion is we think we, can, we have the capacity, not with the resource we currently have, but with the resource we would need. We see the op- revenue opportunity to be four times bigger than we are in five years. Now, that surprised me, but full times is a nice growth figure, and that's because we've been able to really focus on what we're good at and try and stop doing all those distractions that we all do in business. And that is the primary good news from the last two years, probably for most businesses. Stop being distracted by things that look fun or interesting or might be profitable. Generally, they're not. You've got to stick to your stick to your guns and do them better, not try and flirt over here or divest over there.
1: So within this, what 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 is the role of the, the castle that you're currently sitting in? What what was the logic behind buying that and how 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 do you see that developing in the years to come?
0: Well everything we do, as I've explained, is in the drinks industry. I have explained to my team every time we have a Christmas dinner or a summer party Remember, you're in the entertainment business. That is what we do. We are entertaining people every day. We run a magazine or an award or an event. And I've had this secret ambition without actually telling anyone and certainly not telling my wife that I thought rather than just doing events which are one-off moments of this excellence or uh, a magazine which is 8, 6, 10, 12 times a year is to do it the whole time and also to integrate it with the marketplace I'm in and Scotland being one of the key categories for all drink whiskey and gin and other drinks beer which we're also strong in um, I just wanted to bring it all together um, and I felt there was an op- it was going back to the commercial the entrepreneurial issues we were discussing I, I knew there was an opportunity there are tens and my calculation is probably more than a quarter of a million tens of thousands up to a quarter of a million international relatively wealthy people who come to scotland every year just to buy whiskey if you come to Speyside, which is the most dense location for whiskey distillers uh, it is also uh, on the corollary of that has the least accommodation in scotland in any area And particularly, the the slightly lucky thing is that we decided to purchase this castle with one view in mind, which was private use. You take the whole building and you get all the staff that are here, the chef, the the house manager, the housekeepers, at a time when actually it's more than wanted ever before. Because if you want to come and stay somewhere, privacy and, and exclusivity are what coming out of the pandemic we want even more so i've sort of managed to bring everything that i've enjoyed doing for the last 25 years and actually 19 uh, 2000 and this year in september is our 25th anniversary so everything i've done for 24 years sort of comes together in one place it's hospitality it's looking after people it's media because we do quite a lot of events here uh all happening in one place and hopefully profitable as well so that it's sustainable and and genuinely delivers something that wasn't here before, because there is nowhere uh, of this scale to stay with a gang of people, whiskey enthusiasts, distiller clients, or just lovers of Scotland within the area.
1: Sounds very, very exciting. (laughs) Uh, and a smart move now one thing i always like to ask people is uh what advice they could give to their younger self as a sort of setting out on their career it sounds like you didn't really need much advice if you were launching three businesses while you're at cambridge but is there anything you you pass on to the young damien uh
0: i think i think i've said probably the two things but i'll say them again to my youthful self i mean one is is Find what you like and focus. It's the focus thing that is, you know, and any of the really successful businesses out there of scale um, have a kind of obsessional focus, uh, and it does take time to work out what that is. Um, and with that is is obviously the avoid distraction. But if you can be focused and not be distracted, um, then that is great. And you've got to enjoy it. So I mean, I genuinely, I mean, a. a I happen to be in the entertainment, as I've said, sort of industry. So it's good fun. But whether you're in, you know, whatever sector you're in, you've got to enjoy it because then it's not really work. It's actually pleasure that happens to make a profit. So focus and enjoyment and um something good might come out of it.
1: Excellent. Well, we're going to finish now with, Five quick questions. Um, first one is, what's the first record you ever bought?
0: I have no idea. But, I mean, I know, obviously, the greatest record ever written, which I would have listened to, uh, was obviously by ABBA and Dancing Queen. <laughs> so it must have been close to being that.
1: OK, we'll accept that answer. Uh, what, what? What is your alternative fantasy career? Is there something even more sort of interesting out there that you you could have you know think you could have turned your hand to uh
0: probably not career but i would love to have learned how to fly Uh, i could still could but it would be quite fun to be a i think a private jet pilot not a not a i I don't think i'd be too too much enjoy a, a commercial airline but i think a private jet pilot would be great fun okay um who makes you laugh I've oh got Almost anyone from Benny Hill to um, to uh, yeah to uh, Stephen Fry. I mean, I I laugh quite a lot,
1: and um, yeah. He used to um, and I have some. Live, quite he used to live close to the Haymarket offices, didn't he? Benny Hill. <laughs> he did. occasionally seen staggering up the road with his plastic bags full sort of uh, lager in people's heads. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, what I'm... is your signature dish in the kitchen?
0: Uh, well I'll give you two answers one is the one I want to eat which is shepherd's pie I wouldn't know how to make it though Um, and if I'm making it it's always probably the same sort of thing the other way around which is uh, uh, mince with rice what do you call that? mince with peas and with mushrooms and onions and Tabasco and I don't even call it something it's like spaghetti bolognese but without (laughs) spaghetti and no bolognese
1: (laughs) Okay I I I pass on the dinner invitation for minute.
0: <laughs> melange I think I
1: would do. <laughs> Um and, and finally very appropriately given the, the the kind of theme of location in this discussion what what's your favorite place in the world Um well it's definitely somewhere well I have a
0: few but it's, and weirdly they're both related to countryside and um and uh, uh drink which is um the Highlands of Scotland, particularly on a great day, is Orkney, which I've only been to once, but is just mind-blowing for every reason you probably know. And also, I love Kentucky, particularly Bardstown in Kentucky. And and luckily, I live a lot of my life in Norfolk in 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 England, and so that tri triangle of uh, the country of Norfolk, the country of um, of Orkney, and uh, the, the the rural life in Kentucky is is what I love. So I'm clearly not an urban man, you have just reminded me.
1: Well, Damien, it's been fantastic uh, hearing your story. Uh, Very interesting. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back in April with another episode.
0: To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.